Would you uh, join me in praying for these things and just for our time in God's word this morning? Thanks. Father God, we come to you this morning. Um, as Scott said, we, are, uh, we have burdens, we have worries, we have fears, uh, but we're also thankful, God, that in this chaotic world, we know you, we have the hope of the gospel, we have hope of a perfect kingdom to come. Lord, help us to make a difference in our community, um, personally, in our neighborhoods, and corporately as we do these projects and uh, send people to Haiti. Lord, help us to be about the good news and to be people of good works and ultimately to shine the light, not on ourselves, but on you, Lord. Uh, we thank you for the gift of life. We pray that you would um, give the Martins rest and comfort, as I know that experience, and we thank you so much for the gift of, of little Abigail. Pray, pray your protection on her and health, and most of all, your, your protection on her heart, that she would come to know you early. Uh, we pray that you would be with us as we open your word, and that uh, in this critical time, in these days, you would encourage us, you would give us hope and confidence, you would teach us how to be your witnesses in our world. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Okay, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Daniel. Daniel, and we're going to begin, I think, by looking in uh, chapter 1, but we're going to skip around a lot today, and uh, a lot of the verses will not be on the screen. So I really want to encourage you, I, I say this every week, open your Bible, but today especially, uh, I want you to open your Bible because we're going to jump around and, and I haven't put as many of the, of the passages on the screen. So open your Bible, have your nose in the book with me, and we will press forward in our series here uh, called Thriving in Babylon. We live in crazy times, don't we? I mean, can I get an amen on that one? Somebody, please. Uh, not just whether it's political division and concern or racial division in our country or geopolitical issues or the threat of terrorism or things like that or financial crisis or whatever. We live in crazy times. But take heart because most Christians through all of church history have lived in crazy times. And in times of persecution and in times of, of wicked rulers, this has been the norm for Christians and so it's only appropriate that we look at the life of Daniel as he lived in this time of crisis as an exile uh, taken to this evil empire of Babylon, the, the greatest superpower of his day, and he lives faithfully. And the Bible says in uh, chapter 6, Daniel chapter 6, that Daniel actually prospered in these times that were evil and, and he was working for a pagan king. We need to know in this day, as Christians have known uh, in centuries past, most of the Christian church history, most, through most of church history, how to be people of good news surrounded by a lot of bad news, how to be people of light in a world of darkness, how to be people of truth in a world full of spin and lies, to live faithfully in this time. As I've said in weeks past, there's no other time that we can live in. We can't escape this time. We can't go back to first century with Jesus and walk with him. We can't be uh, a Christian with uh, Daniel in the time of Babylon. We have to be faithful Christians today. There's no time machine. This is where God has placed us to live faithfully. So we have a lot to learn here from the life of Daniel who accomplished this and I think gives us a great sense of aspiration and encouragement as we do this today. 
As I've said in, in weeks past, they're really, as we look through Daniel's life, we really see three keys that helped him to thrive in his day. And those three keys being hope, humility, and wisdom. Hope, humility, and wisdom. And we're going to look at humility today. We're going to look at wisdom for the next two Sundays. The way we started this series was by looking at Daniel's hope. And we saw that Daniel's hope was not in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. It was not in the kingdom of Darius. It was in no human earthly kingdom. But it was this hope that he had in an everlasting kingdom that was, come, that was to come. You can read about that in chapter 2 or chapter 4 of Daniel. He had this hope, but it wasn't an earthly hope. It was a hope in the promise of God that he had been given to us, that he had been given. And so we said, we, as, as Larry Osborne has said, we have to realize the fact that God is in control of who's in control. Isn't that hard to believe today? God is in control of who's in control. Maybe the hardest verses to hear this morning, Daniel chapter 2, go ahead and there, go there with me. Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, look in there with me. Daniel 2, 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. And look at verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Did you catch that, verse 21? He removes kings and he sets up kings. God is in control of who is in control. He was then, he is today, and therefore, because he is good, because he is sovereign, because he has a plan for a good and perfect kingdom to come, we can trust him in the now. Amen. God's in control of who's in control. We have that hope. This morning, we're going to look at humility, how humility was a key trait of Daniel and needs to be a key trait for us as it was in our Lord. So what do, as we think about humility, first of all, I want us to think about some, some uh, poor ideas of humility. And by the way, the title of this sermon today uh, is called Walk This Way. And I know that uh, many of you know that my mama told me to walk this way and talk this way, and some of you didn't get that, okay? Uh, anyway, walk this way, walk in humility. And in fact, before mama told me to walk this way, talk this way, God, through the prophet Micah, told us to walk this way. Micah 6, 8 says this, he has told you, O man, what is good, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God tells us through Micah to walk humbly with our God. Humility is something that when we know God in his grace, when we have received the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are humbled. And we are to walk in that humility, to walk this way. So first of all, bad ideas about humility. I think we get kind of out of sorts about this, and sometimes we think humility is something that it really isn't. There's some bad concepts of humility. Sometimes we think that humility just means a, a lack of ambition. Uh, that's not humility. That's laziness. To be humble is not to strive after something or to try to seek to be excellent in something. Humility is, is having a proper view of yourself in, in light of your abilities, in light of your own sin, in light of the cross and how God loves you in your sin. So humility is not saying I have no ambition. It's not being uh, just a doormat for something or, uh, for, or for someone. It's not just being lazy or without goals or aspirations. Uh, it's not being without skill. Um, 
Humility is not being without skill. In fact, we see in Daniel chapter 1, verse 4, that Daniel was among the, the, the top of the top, the top of his class. In Daniel uh, 1, 4, it says this, that as they took these youths uh, from Israel, it said they were youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. What are they saying here? That Daniel was among the brightest He actually uh, graduated at the top of his class at the College of Chaldea. He was educated in the religion of the occult and the the philosophy of Babylon that day. And he went through that liberal education and he graduated at the top of his class. He's a good-looking guy. He's got wisdom and understanding and he's got competency and he's respected. It's not that he's without ambition and it's not that he's without competency, but yet we see through his life in how God has gifted him and where God has placed him, he's incredibly humble. We're going to see that, observe that in just a second. One uh, person has said this, one person has said, humility doesn't mean I think less of myself, but I think of myself less. You catch that? Humility doesn't mean that I think less of myself, but that I think of myself less. Now, let me take issue with the first part of that. Some of us do need to think less of ourselves, don't we? I mean, we're propped up. We're uh, we're confused about our self-awareness. I read a quote this week that says, my my self-awareness, my self-perception is about as accurate as a carnival mirror. Ever been to a carnival or haunted house and they've got those warped mirrors and things are distorted and things are exaggerated and things are contorted and and that's for for many of us what our self-concept is like apart from the mirror of God's word and other friends who will speak the truth to us. But for some of us, we do need to think less of ourselves, but that's not the essence of humility. The essence of humility is thinking rightly of ourselves in light of how God has created us, in light of the cross, in light of how others have affirmed us to walk humbly with God and men. Winston Churchill famously said uh, to one of his political uh, opponents in some uh, nasty political times, he said that one of his opponents was humble and had many good reasons to be humble. That's not what we're talking about here with Daniel. This guy is competent. He's excelled. He's got skills. And yet still he is humble. Look with me at Daniel's humility beginning uh, in chapter 1. You see it, first of all, in verse 8, how he approaches this this, uh, area of conscience. He doesn't want to eat the king's food. So he goes, Daniel 1.8 says this, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Where do you see humility there? That he asked. He went, to the, he went to the chief of the eunuchs and he didn't put his hands on his hips and demand or point his fingers and say, I'm not going to eat that crap. Excuse me. I'm not going to drink that stuff. He said, can I request that I have a different diet, me and my friends? I don't want to defile my conscience. He makes a request, not a demand. You ever say that to your kids? Are, are you telling me? Or are you asking me? You know? I say that to my kids only a few times an hour. <laughs> but he goes respectfully and he makes this request. You see the same kind of idea in Daniel chapter 2. Turn to Daniel chapter, chapter 2, beginning of verse 14. Daniel has uh, interpreted this dream. He's not only interpreted the dream, but he told the king Nebuchadnezzar, he told king Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was. 
Because Nebi said, I'm not going to let you interpret the dream, O you wise men, O you enchanters, unless you can tell me what the dream was. So Daniel says, hey, here's what your dream was. And Nebi's like, okay, now I'll listen to you. And then, Nebi, and then Daniel says, uh, here's what the dream means. And I call him Nebi for short, okay? Nebuchadnezzar. It's hard to say. Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel chapter 2, he's interpreted the dream. And beginning of verse 14, Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. You might underline those two words. Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. Why? So pause here. He's going out to kill the wise men of Babylon because they haven't been able to interpret his dream, okay? Daniel intercedes here in verse 15. He says, he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel intercedes here in verse 16, and he says, Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. You see what he did there? He said, I, 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 God has given me skills. Let me intercede here. Let me interpret. So he, again, he, he makes a request. He doesn't make a demand. He makes a request to this pagan, awful, mean king that's getting ready to kill some people because they couldn't read his mind. Daniel makes a request. And then he, he tells the king what the dream was and the interpretation of the dream. And again, in verse 30, look at verse 30 with me. Daniel says he doesn't take credit for what he's done. He doesn't take credit for his skills or the precision of, of his interpretation. He says, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom I have more than all the living but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. What is, it he, what is he saying here? He's saying, I've got skills. I can interpret, but it's, it's not because I'm great. It's not because I'm smart. It's not because I'm better than the other guys. It's because God has chosen me and revealed this to me. He's humble. All of his gifts, he gives glory back to God. And that's really true for all of us. You may, you, you may be a genius, your, your ACT may have been a 36, whatever you got. Uh, you may be incredibly athletic, whatever it is. And you probably honed those skills, but ultimately, the time that you were born, the parents that you were born to, the skills that you have ultimately are not yours. They are gifts from God, and Daniel realizes that, and it makes him, and it keeps him humble. Moving on, verse 49 of chapter 2. Uh, again, a request. I won't read this one, but basically he succeeds. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, spares his, his life. And then Daniel makes another request. He says, would you please let Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be promoted in the kingdom? He makes a request. Again, flip over to chapter four, Daniel chapter four. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream and Daniel interprets that dream in chapter four. And the dream in chapter four is this dream of this huge tree with broad leaves. It's high and it's beautiful and has lots of fruit, but then the tree is chopped down at the base. And so Nebuchadnezzar, what's this mean? And Daniel interprets the dream. He says, the tree is you. Your kingdom is going to be chopped down. It's over, Nebi. You've judged Israel, but now your time for judgment is now. So chapter four uh, yes, chapter 4, verse 19, read along with me. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, he got his name changed when he was taken to, to uh, Babylon. Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. What's going on here? 
Daniel knows that the dream means, man, you're, you're gone. Your kingdom is sunk. And Daniel, this follower of Yahweh, this follower of God who's been working for this pagan king, doesn't raise his hands and shout and say, nanny boo boo, ha ha, your time has gone. He is, is over. He actually is dismayed because in somehow as he served this king, he's developed an affection for him and a genuine love for him. It says that he was dismayed. And Nebuchadnezzar says, don't let it alarm you. He is alarmed somewhere. Even though he is working for the enemy, so to speak, he still has consideration. He still has love. He still has a certain amount of respect for the position and the person here that is the king. Isn't that amazing? If Daniel were in this uh, position, this position of power in a, in a pagan kingdom or working for someone that you or I thought was a really evil dictator or leader or something like that, many of us would accuse him of selling out. You're working for the bad guy. You're working for the enemy. Wouldn't we? But Daniel keeps his conscience clean and still works in this pagan company, works for this pagan government and maintains his purity and still has a respect for the person who's king. Even though I'm sure he dramatically differed in opinion on him with him on many, many things, he kept his respect. How did Daniel get promoted? How did Daniel prosper? How did Daniel thrive? Well, it wasn't because he was disrespectful to the person over him. It wasn't because he pointed his fingers and said how evil the king was and talked down to himself righteously. He didn't get promoted. He didn't thrive by his disrespect. He didn't thrive by eye rolling or saying, you're such an idiot. But he managed to respect the king and his position even though he greatly disagreed with him. He's humble. It's fascinating in the book of Daniel, how we have this wonderful example of humility, and it's clearly contrasted with this clear example of pride. That pride being the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. The pride of Nebuchadnezzar. Flip with me over to Daniel uh, chapter 4. I guess you're already in Daniel chapter 4. But Nebuchadnezzar is not a humble guy, he's the opposite of humility. He's full of pride. He's full of arrogance. In fact, in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, I want everyone to bow down and worship the statue of me. Okay? Not exactly humble, right? So Daniel, humble, Nebuchadnezzar, proud. So pick it up with me uh, in beginning in verse 29 of Daniel uh, chapter 4. Daniel 4, verse 29. Earlier in the passage, Nebuchadnezzar had been warned, your time is over, your kingdom is coming to an end, right? The tree is going to fall. But then we pick it up in verse 29, it says, at the end of the 12 months, after he had received this warning, this prophecy of judgment, at the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power and as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty... You see any pride in verse 30? Just a few times, if you underline, my, my, my. Verse 31, he goes on. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and shall be driven, and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. 
and you shall be made to eat grass like ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Now, let me stop right there. That phrase in verse 32 is repeated three times in chapter 4. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And folks, it's still true today. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. I'm sorry to say. And yet I'm happy to say he's still sovereign. And what's happening here? Nebuchadnezzar has has set himself up a statue to be worshiped. He's taken credit for everything that God has given to him. And what is God's judgment on his pride? It's fascinating the way God judges him because Nebuchadnezzar has set himself up as more than a man, as a God, if you will. And how does God judge him? By making him less than a man, a beast. Isn't that fascinating? Move on, uh, verse 33. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. He has not only been humbled, he has been humiliated. Verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Nebuchadnezzar gets the picture. He's put in his place, if you will. If you move on down, verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me and and the glory of my kingdom returned. My majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom again and still more greatness was added to me. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, King, king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And we and I should be humbled by those words this morning. God will not give his glory to another. He will not let you take glory for yourself that is not rightly yours. He who walks in pride, he is able to humble. We won't take the time to look there, but I encourage you to look in chapter five on your own time where Nebuchadnezzar's son becomes king after Nebuchadnezzar and, the, and Daniel goes to him at the time of Darius and says, here's what's happened to your father because of his pride and here's what's getting ready to happen to you because of your pride. And uh, Belshazzar, all the names are confusing in this book, Belteshazzar, and then Belshazzar is the next king. Hard to keep that straight, right? Uh, Belteshazzar is Daniel, excuse me. Uh, so Belshazzar is warned by Daniel about his pride also, just like his father's. And that night, He's killed. Nebuchadnezzar, full of pride. Daniel, full of competency, but full of humility. Jonathan Edwards called pride the worst viper that is in the human heart and the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. 
Edwards ranked pride as the most difficult sin to root out and the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts. Let me take you one more contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 4, verse 4. Go there with me. Daniel 4, 4. I want you to examine. This is before the second dream. I want you to examine Daniel's peace, Daniel's uh, nerves, Daniel, uh, I said Daniel, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar. Pick it up here with me in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Now let's stop right there. How's that look? How's that feel? Here's Nebuchadnezzar. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Here's a guy, maybe one of a handful, maybe a, less than half a dozen men in the world who have known the power and the authority and the money, the, the prominence, the power, all that stuff. Nebuchadnezzar, probably one of half a dozen men in the world who have ever experienced this kind of power. He's in his house, at ease, prospering in his palace, but then... Look at verse five. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Here's a guy that knows power that none of us will ever know. He's at ease, he's prospering at it, and yet, as he lays his head down at night, he can't sleep. He's got everything he wants, He's got all power. He's got every need met. And he can't sleep. He's fearful. He's anxious. He's scared that his kingdom will fall. He's scared of his enemies. He's scared of this dream that he sees. A guy with everything. And he's afraid. Contrast, Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. 6, verse 10. In chapter 6, Daniel, Daniel's friends, so to speak, I say friends in air quotes, uh, Daniel's friends, the other satraps, the other uh, leaders in the king's palace, they set him up. They're jealous of him. Out of pride, they're jealous of Daniel. So say, they set this trap. They say, if we're going to find any fault in Daniel, it's going to be about his religion. So they set up with King Darius, they say, make this, uh, make this rule that if anyone that prays or worships anyone other than you, they'll be cast in the lion's den. We've all heard this story, right? So they, they, in their pride, they conspire against Daniel, who has a track record of competency and integrity, and they aspire against him. And Daniel learns about this, this conspiracy against him and how they're trying to trap him in his devotion to God. And looks at Daniel's response, Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. What's happening here? Nebuchadnezzar has everything that he wants and he can't lay his head down at night and sleep peacefully and Daniel is getting ready to be thrown in a lion's den and he goes back and prays as he's always done and continues to be obedient. And not only, folks, notice there in verse 10, not only is he, is he praying prayers, God delivered me, God helped me, God get my enemies. 
But the prayers, do you see what kind of prayers that it says that he prayed? They were prayers of thanks. <laughs> now, if you were getting ready to get your head chopped off or being thrown to the lion, into the lion's den because of your religion, would you go back to your home and pray as it has been your pattern and pray prayers of thanksgiving to your God? Would you do that? Could you do that as Daniel did? I couldn't. Let me ask you another question. If you lived in a country that you were desperately worried about what was happening and, and what the next four years were gonna look like and how that was gonna affect your kids and your family and your grandkids as they grown up, if, you, if that scenario happened to you, could you go back to your home or could you go back to your place of worship and thank God that you've been placed here for this time and this purpose and this place in this country? Folks, we're living in exile. We're living in Babylon. And yet, folks, we have an incredible opportunity before us. Even if we get thrown in a lion's den, even if the, the fabric of our country falls apart, to continue to be faithful as we have always done and take our cues not from the earthly king, but from the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Nebuchadnezzar, scared, afraid, he has it all. Daniel, under threat of persecution, and he prays and he gives thanks. Let me draw this contrast between the two again. I wrote it down like this. Humility draws others to you. Pride distances others from you. When you're humble, success doesn't go to your head. When you're proud, success never leaves your head. When you're humble, failure doesn't crush you. When you're proud, failure continually haunts you. When you're humble, you feel thankful. When you're proud, you feel entitled. When you're humble, you're easily satisfied. When you're proud, you're easily frustrated. Are you humble? Am I humble? Man, that's tough. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. Peter writes it like this. Peter says, All of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Humility is an attitude of the heart, but right here in verse 5, there's also an action that we take where we dress ourselves in humility, or some translations, dress or clothe yourselves in humility. Humility is an attitude, but it's also often an action that we have to take where we humble ourselves. And it's been said that if we don't humble ourselves, God will humble us for ourselves. So I want to ask you right now in the quietness of your heart to just go before the Lord. Maybe all eyes closed here and just go before the Lord and ask him to search your heart and see where is it that you need to humble yourself. Where do you need to humble yourself before him? Where do you need to humble yourself perhaps before someone else? I'm going to give you a moment to think about that.
we might be walking in to some even crazier times than we've known recently. And as we try to thrive in Babylon, as it were, one of the things that won't help us be effective as Christ's ambassadors is pride. To be able to take a stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the one way to heaven, will be tough. But to make that statement in humility will be even tougher. But that's what we have to do. To make, a, to, to make a stand for what we believe is moral and right and good and beautiful and true. It's easy to make those statements and not care about respecting others, but to make those same statements, to stand up for that one gospel, to stand up for that truth, that beautiful, good truth, and do so with respect and with humility is the even harder challenge, but it's the challenge for us now. And if we just bolt out of here with truth, but wearing that truth in pride, that's not what God would have for us. The greatest example of humility in all the world was the son of God, Jesus, who came to this earth, had all power, had all authority, had every reason to brag, and yet came in humility and showed that humility ultimately through the cross. Mark 10, 45 says, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the motivation. Jesus is the power to live with humility in a broken world. He didn't have to, he didn't have to come, but he left the, the perfection of, hev- of heaven to come to this broken earth and humbly give himself for us. As we look at Jesus, we see humility. As we look at the cross, we're made humble because as we look at the cross, we see that we're sinners. The cross shows us that none of us are good enough on our own. We had to be humbled through the cross. So as Christians, because of the cross, we can't be proud, but we also need not despair. The cross crushes our pride because it says we're so bad Jesus had to die for us. But it picks us up out of despair because it says that Jesus loved us so much, he died for us. He willingly died for us. To walk in humility, we look at Jesus. To walk in humility, we look at the cross which says you're so bad, you're so messed up. It required the son of God on a bloody cross. But don't despair because he loved you so much He was glad to do it. As we come to the communion table this morning, we're reminded of the ultimate act of humility. God in flesh sent to this world who hung on a cross to pay our sins. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? I want to invite our communion servers to go ahead and come forward and take your place as well. Maybe you're here this morning and uh, you've been humbled. Maybe you're here this morning and you realize the pride of your heart is to live as your own king and you haven't yielded your life to the king of kings and lord of lords and you need to do business with God right now and just say, Lord Jesus, thank you for humbling yourself to this earth to pay for my sins. And Jesus, I come to you now in faith and ask that you would change me 
and that you would help me to live a life in light of your humility, in light of your sacrifice for me. If you've never understood the gospel, if you've never seen the humility of Jesus for you, I encourage you to pray that right now. For the rest of you, I encourage you just to examine your heart and come forward. As you come forward, you'll take the bread and dip it in the cup and you'll be reminded of the body and blood of Christ shed for you. For God so loved the world, he humbled himself, gave his one and only son. Father God, we come to the table this morning in humility, knowing that we were worse than we think we are, but we are more loved than we could ever imagine. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the wonderful cross. And pray that through this act, you would empower us to go and live lives of truth and lives of humility. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Come and celebrate.